This week at Hope Point. Earth is hard. And so what God needs is people who don't panic when earth is hard. We sorrow, we grieve. Our losses change our lives forever. It takes us sometimes years to recover. But in the middle of that, we tell people there is a Christ who's died to redeem the world from this curse. And if you want to live forever in that new earth where the curse is lifted, you must come to Christ. Scriptures concerning the end times can be confusing, but so much hope can be found through a diligent study of these topics in God's Word. In Revelation 6, we see four horsemen who will bring four judgments to the world. These judgments are meant to be a wake-up call to the church and unbelievers alike. Eternity is the reality we need to remember. Are we living for ourselves, or are we ambassadors drawing others to the knowledge of God's kingdom? Revelation 22 says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. God calls us to simply come to Him while there is still time. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation 6. There comes a time in the life of every child when he decides he wants to jump in the deep end. He may have grown up swimming in a kiddie pool outside the backyard, then goes to the big pool in the community, but stays in the shallow end. But there comes a time when he goes to the end of the diving board and says to his mom or dad, I want to, I want to jump in the deep end. Well, this is where we are in the book of Revelation. Today, we start chapter six, which begins the deep end of the book. The first five chapters are pretty easy to understand, pretty easy to teach. But chapter six begins three massive chapters of the judgments of Jesus Christ on the world and on the earth. And for those people who typically walk around and I just love going deep in church, I'm not so sure you do. These are complex issues. They require more, this more than for the faint of heart can handle. And more than a superficial mind that gets the majority of your theology from a 140 character tweet. It's really some serious thinking about what's going on in Revelation chapter 6, the judgment of Christ on the earth. Let me tell you how we got here if you're new to the church today. Revelation 1, Jesus talks to one of his disciples. They've not seen each other in 50 years. And John is discouraged. He's a political prisoner on an island. Jesus appears to him in his massiveness and says, John, you need a big Christ. You need a big Christ if you're going to survive first century persecution. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus tells uh, John, this is what the situation of the churches are like. Seven churches in modern-day Turkey formerly Asia Minor, they're not good. They're not ready to handle the, the pressures of culture. John, you need to write to them and tell them to get your act together if you're going to handle the, the pressure of, of culture. Then in chapter 4, we really see the secret of how you handle culture. We have a vision of heaven. John is taken up to heaven and he sees the glory of God. Just a reminder of where we're headed, who we serve. And you need to look to heaven often or you're going to cave to sorrow, cave to grief, cave to temptation, and cave to the peer pressure of wanting to be adored by this world. And then chapter 5, we come to the greatest question that's ever been asked in the Bible. Who is really worthy to unleash 
the harsh judgments of the world that need to occur, must occur, before the return of Jesus Christ, someone has to unleash harsh judgments on the world. This, these, these judgments are in a scroll. They're in God's hand on a throne, and the only person that's worthy to take that scroll from the hand of God is Jesus Christ. In chapter five, he's called the lamb. He's not called the son of God in chapter five, he's called the lamb of God because he was sacrificed like a lamb in the Old Testament. His blood was spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Everybody in this room can be forgiven by the blood of Christ that was spilled, mentioned in chapter five. And then in chapter five, he sends out the Holy Spirit to begin gathering from all the nations, people who are coming into the kingdom of God and will believe in the blood of Christ. And because of that, he's worthy. So let me say one more thing before we begin into chapter six, and I'll say this several times throughout our study of these, of these, of these three chapters, um, because it's, um, it can be confusing when you read the book. Um, we're talking about the judgments of God today when Jesus opens that scroll, and he opens and he unties it seven times. Each time it's called the opening of a seal. And when you get to the seventh seal, it looks like history is over, Judgment of the world has taken place, and, and we go to heaven in chapter 7. So you shout hallelujah, then until you come to chapter 8, and all the judgments begin again. And then you go through those judgments, and then you go to heaven, and then all of a sudden you... So you need to understand, you're not going to understand the book until you realize the book is a series of seven cycles. Over and over again, we see this pattern in the cycles. Christ sends judgment to get the world's attention. And the church is persecuted during this time by the world that hates what Christ is doing. And then Christ sends a final judgment on earth and the church is taken to heaven. And God says that seven times. If you're a parent, you probably understand. You've probably told your child the same thing seven times, haven't you? So this is the purpose of the cycles in Revelation. Don't read it as a linear, but read it as, you hear that? You get the lesson again. You get the lesson again. And the, the cool thing about Revelation is finally when you get to the seventh cycle of suffering on this earth, the seventh cycle really does open us to the true return of Christ. I mean, he's really, it's no more like you got anything else to come. It's it. He's back. We're with him. It's done. There is no another cycle. So what people always want to know is how do you know which cycle we're in? And that's the beauty of the book. He will not tell you. Because, you know, people during World War I, I mean, 40 million people died in World War I. Surely they thought this is the seventh cycle. This is the return of Christ. Go to World War II. Surely all those brave men and women who fought, surely, and we saw all the deaths around the world, surely we thought this is it. And all the world wars and conflicts have been that. And so then you come to the, the crazy time in which we live right now and you say, it's, it's got that feeling that surely this is cycle number seven now. And the answer is, it could be. It could be. We could be in the seventh cycle. No more, no more suffering. This time, it's going to be the return of Christ. But you don't know. So what the book of Revelation tells you is in any time in any of the seven cycles, be ready then. So that the intention of the book of Revelation is to keep the church in a state of readiness because at the end of one of those cycles, when it's finally cycle, it, we read these words like we come to the end of chapter six. Those who are being tortured by the end times destruction cry out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? And at that time, there's no opportunity anymore to repent. This, they had all the warnings of the six judgments before. So that's the purpose of the cycles, to keep you ready, to keep you ready. Now, having said that, let's look at cycle number one and, um, and the beginning, the first of those judgments. Revelation 6, 1, I watched as the Lamb, that's Jesus, opened the first of the seven seals. This is a scroll that's sealed seven times. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So please get this because this will be the pattern in all of them. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, gives authority to one of the living creatures that's surrounding the throne of God to go issue a command, come to one of the agents of wrath that's about to fall on earth. And here, the living creature goes and summons somebody on a white horse. Now, by the time we get to the end of the fourth horse, that's all we'll get to today, Four different color horses. I asked Hunter earlier in the week, can you find me a song about four colored horses? He said he couldn't. So by the time we get to the end of the fourth horse, you will understand where that phrase has come from that you've heard many, many times in your life. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are the four horsemen of Revelation chapter six, each of them bringing a judgment on, on earth. Now through the years, people have tried to identify Jesus Christ as the rider on the white horse. And they do that mistakenly, he's not. They do that mistakenly because there is a white horse, very important white horse, in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. So in chapter six, you have a rider on a white horse um, sent out to conquer, and then you have one in Revelation 19 that's sent out to conquer. The one in chapter 19 is Jesus Christ. The one in chapter 6 is not because they're, no, they're nothing alike. In chapter 6, he has one crown on his head. The one in chapter 19, Jesus Christ, has many crowns on his head. The one in chapter 6 is associated with three other very evil riders on horses that bring massive amounts of destruction. And Jesus Christ in chapter 19 is coming back for the ultimate salvation of, of his church. So you, you probably have to ask a question at this point of why would God even allow the possibility of confusion by, you know, when he wrote the book to use the white horse in chapter six. And I think there's a, I mean, because God has a lot of colors of crayons in the box, but he chose to pick out white for this horse. I think there's a reason for that is to try to help you understand what you'll see later in the book and what you've seen throughout scripture already is that Jesus Christ does a very good job of imitating uh, I mean, that Satan, Satan does a very good job of imitating Jesus Christ in his offer of salvation. That is, the Bible says that Jesus Christ appears as an angel of light. I mean, there's never been a five-year-old who has an ambition to grow up and say, I think I'll spend the rest of my life in prison. But somehow, somewhere between five and prison, something told him, make this choice, it will be good. This is what Satan does. He calls us something that's absolutely hideous and harmful to appear as something that will save you. So here in Revelation chapter 6, we have this white horse, sort of an imitation of Christ in the sense the, the rider on the white horse is coming to say, I can save you. And the whole world buys it. 
The Bible says here at the end of verse 2, he's coming to conquer and he's bent on conquest. So here this rider on the white horse who looks a little bit like Jesus who offers salvation is promising to save you if you, at the end of the verse, will let him control you. So that's how revelation, that's how the judgments begin. Jesus Christ unleashes the first of the judgments. He gives the world over to a spirit of believing that this savior could be a political savior, could be a military savior, could be a cultural savior, but he's promising to save, but he's bent not on saving, but he's bent on controlling Controlling that will ultimately lead to death. You know, if you look at, if you study the, the biography of Adolf Hitler, you, it's, it's just difficult to believe that how such a, a, a demonically controlled goofball could ever have risen to the level of power that he obtained. Because there was nothing but utter failure throughout his life. And then he promises to Germany that's in a difficult time of lots of tension in Germany, lots of economic problems Germany and Hitler says I can save you if you trust me and let me control you and 11 million dead people later everybody saw that he was not bent on saving he was bent on killing second seal when the lamb opened the second seal I heard the second living creature say come then another horse came a fiery red one its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So again, we see Jesus, the lamb, gives authority to the living creature to go out, issue, come to the horse and its rider. The horse goes out, the rider goes out. Peace is taken from the earth, which means war, new type of wars is occurring on earth and many people die from, from war. Jesus Christ said one of the signs of the end of times in Mark chapter 13 would be an increase in war. You can look at whether they're small cities or large cities like LA and New York, Chicago, the unbelievable increase in war within the cities surely would have those people uncomfortable with where they are in, in history. So let's again put this in context. The white horse comes, looks like a savior, says, I can save you if you'll let me control you. And instead of controlling, he kills and produces massive amounts of violence. Number three, seal. Remember, opening three seals of the seven of the scroll. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a Daenerys and three quarts of barley for a Daenerys and do not damage the oil and the wine. So again, the same scenario, Jesus the lamb gives authority to the living creature, invites an agent of destruction come and here, we're not surprised that this agent of destruction would be issuing a very uh, obvious shortage of the basic necessities of life. Massive supply chain problem clearly here. 
as you can see in the inflation that is, that is, um, that is fully described in this verse. A quart of wheat for a denarius. Have you ever heard of such a thing? That's, <laughs> I know you don't know what that is. But listen, every laborer in this time, day and age, if you worked, a, if you worked your eight hours, however many times, whatever, at the end of your day, you got paid a denarius. With that denarius, you were going to go buy your family food. Normally, it only required an eighth of a denarius to buy a quart of wheat. An eighth. Now it took a whole denarius to buy a quart of wheat. Wheat was good food. Barley was sort of for the poor. So 800% increase in prices because that's what war does. War disrupts everything. I was, And it's interesting. The people of Asia Minor would have definitely understood this because in Asia Minor, the, the primary thing that they had to import was wheat. They could produce oil, grapes, vineyards there in Asia Minor, but they had to export or they had to import wheat from one of the places they got most of their wheat for was from modern day Ukraine. Listen to this article. This was written March 7th in the LA Times. It'd be interesting to see what this writer is thinking now. But he's, he's, uh, he wrote an article regarding the food prices um, and the availability of food if the war in Ukraine continues. And here's his quote. Russia and Ukraine combined for nearly a third of the world's wheat and barley exports. Ukraine is also a major supplier of corn and the global leader in sunflower oil, which is used in food processing. So Ukrainian farmers are finding it very difficult right now to farm because they're on the run for their life. So we've not even seen any global disruptions, not much, in food yet. But the article said in July, you know how it takes a while for things to catch up in industry, if the war continues to be a protracted one, it looks like it's going to throw many people into poverty in places like Egypt and Lebanon where their diets are dominated by government-subsidized bread. So we've not even seen exactly what the war could do to the world. Final horse, Revelation 6, when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked and behold an ashen horse that would be pale green. You know how that is when you've been sick before. Someone says, you look green. So this is like, this is disease that happens in time of calamity. I looked and behold an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death. And Hades was following him, another name for death. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. That last phrase doesn't mean a lot to us in the 21st century, but in times of antiquity, people pretty much thought, I'm going to either die from invading armies or famine or disease or wild animals. It's just how you, you could read it in Leviticus 14, Ezekiel 14. You, uh, secular history, people thought that this is just a way of saying going to be many sources many means of, of death. But this is what war does. It produces famine, 
Obviously, violence, disease, and death. And again, just think about this. It all started with somebody riding on that white horse in the first vision, the first somebody coming and saying, I can save you. I can save you. And what he produces is war, famine, disease, and death. So that's all we're going to do today on the, the four horses, the four horsemen or the, four, the seals. There's three more to go. But I think at this time, you probably had enough questions raised in your mind. I thought I would conclude my talk today. Five statements from the book of Revelation about the judgment of Christ. Probably you are asking the same questions I did, so I'd like to say five statements about Christ's judgment. Number one, the judgment of Christ occurs when his power, holiness, and mercy are rejected. This is why he's unleashing wrath on the earth. If you look at all of the praises that are given to Jesus in chapters four and five, they boil down to the fact that the angels and those who are in heaven praise him for three things. Um, his power um, and his holiness and his mercy. Look at this, Revelation Chapter 4 and 5, there's all combining. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're praising because he's pure and excellent and holy. You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. They're praising for his power. Then, with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every nation. They're praising for his mercy. He died on the cross. So what a God. What a great God. He creates everything. I was marveling yesterday. God put all the leaves back on the trees. He does that all the time, every year. So you got God's power and his holiness and then his mercy for those who violated his holiness. You would think we would all be sinning and know the world hates God for those things. They hate his supremacy. They hate his sovereignty. And so if God did not communicate to the world in terms of judgment, God would be making this statement. My holiness is not a big deal. My power is not a big deal. My blood is not a big deal. And your sinning against my power, holiness, and mercy is not a big deal. If God were silent... That would be the statement that he's making. We look at our culture today and see how determined it is to rebel against God. Fierce rebellion against sexuality, gender, the sanctity of life, and the creation of hatred through all sorts of lies that divide us as a people. All of this... This has nothing to do with conservative versus liberal. It's got to do with a world that hates God. And so God responds by saying, it's a big deal to, respond, to rebel against my power, my holiness, and my mercy. And so God begins to judge the world. You know, people spend so much time time trying to reconcile together the Jesus of chapter 5 and the Jesus of chapter 6. And you'll see a lot of false churches emphasizing one or the other. 
Well, he's both there. So here's the way. The Bible has no problem reconciling the two pictures of Jesus. The lamb who saves will judge. And the lamb who judges will save. It simply depends upon your relationship to him. He's willing to save you. But he'll judge those who continue to rebel. Point number two, the judgment of Christ occurs by lessening his restraint of evil. For judgment to occur in this world, Jesus doesn't have to do anything other than take his hand off and let the world be what it is. It's not like he has to drum up evil. <laughs> if you ever watch rodeos and you watch this cowboy climb into this chute on top of this massive bull whose muscles are quivering. Like, dude, what are you thinking? And then he wraps his arm, he wraps his hand over and over again with his rope, as if that's gonna help. <laughs> Listen, and then for some reason he does this to the people who are holding this gate. Gives them a nod. As Soon as he gives the nod, that gate opens, and that bull does what bulls do. Buck their rider. This is really how evil works. The only thing that evil wants to do is create disaster. The only reason evil is not creating disaster at any certain time in history is the merciful restraint of Jesus Christ. God restrains evil in many ways. He restrains evil through human conscience. He restrains evil through the family. He restrains evil through the government. And he restrains evil through the church preaching. And when you begin to take these things out of society, evil erupts. And the only reason you would take things out of society is when society screams to God, take your hand off and let us love evil. And then society begins to pursue the evil that it wants, but not loving the results that occur out of that. Number three, the judgment of Christ is merciful because it could be far more severe in Revelation chapter 6, we read on when we got to the fourth horse, how many people of the earth died with the release of that pale green horse? A fourth. Fourth. Not two-fourths, not three-fourths, not four-fourths, which is one. Don't mean to be bragging. <laughs> but it wasn't all the world. It wasn't three-fourths. It wasn't a half. It was a fourth. That's mercy. That means three-fourths of the world was spared. So Jesus is trying to gain the attention of the majority of the world by releasing partial judgment, but not complete judgment. That's mercy. Do you remember in that verse we read with the, the inflation verse with the third horse that, that Jesus said, you know, um, going to be all these high prices on wheat. And then he said, but then he gives this command, but do not, do not harm the oil and the wine. Like, what's that mean? Well, in Asia Minor, that was the only export they had. 
What kind of mercy is this? Yeah, sure, their import of wheat was hindered, but since prices would be higher, at least they could still produce the very thing they could export for money. Mercy. When Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus said, or God said, in the moment you sin and eat of the, I've given you 10,000 trees, don't eat from that one gobble. As soon as they did, God said, when you eat from it, you will die. But they didn't die immediately, did they? They did not die. They lived hundreds of years getting to have family and farms and Easter egg hunts or whatever it was back then. And then they got to grow and learning how to produce, eventually manufacture and invent. Then we have the wonderful world today of medicine. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die, and they didn't die. That's mercy. So this is what you see in Revelation is severe judgments, but they're merciful because they could have been far more severe. You know, in Jesus' day, there was a tower that fell in the city of Siloam, and it killed 18 people. And as soon as it fell, you know, people are coming to Jesus, which we always do. Why'd that happen? And he just doesn't like questions like that. Why did those people die is our question. He will not answer that. No time when they ask a why question did he. He said another question. Is this how he answered it? Do you think that you were more guilty than all the... Do you think they... Sorry, that's bad mystery. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will also perish. So 18 people died and Jesus said, learn from the tower. If you don't repent, there is something coming for you as well. So Jesus uses partial judgment to get the attention of the rest of us that other judgments are coming. Number four, The judgment of Christ occurs to awaken the world from future and final danger. So Revelation 6 begins with a fourth of the world destroyed. Revelation 6 ends with all of the world destroyed. So there is a much more severe judgment coming than we see in the first seven verses. So somewhere between verse 7 a fourth of the world, and verse 12, all of the world, they have all of this time to repent and to come to Christ. That's mercy. There is a harsher judgment coming. That's why Kevin DeYoung says, every act of judgment is an offer of mercy from God because he's warning of the final and much more severe judgment. You know, we just finished celebrating Easter and I didn't preach on this, but you remember when Jesus was crucified, there were three crosses, three people were crucified, Jesus, the sinless one in the middle, and on his right and left, two criminals, absolutely guilty. Well, the criminal on his left was cursing Jesus for his own execution. Like He hated Jesus, he was guilty. Cursed him, cursed him, cursed him. The one on the right yelling back over Jesus to the one on the left, hey, bro, we deserve this. We did the crime. And then he looks at Jesus in the middle and says, would you forgive me? And Jesus said to him, today, brother, and forever, you will be with me in paradise. 
So one man did not learn anything from it, judgment. One man learned this cross is agonizing, but what's coming is more agonizing. Will you please forgive me? I remember in December 2004, our church had just started. Well, I mean, we started officially in 2003, but we were just beginning. We hadn't even hired Ronnie yet, so we were sort of half putting together this glorious mission thing that he's really amped up. But we were just getting started, and we were really beginning to send a good bit of money to India, and um, primarily we were supporting a, a, an orphanage in Chennai. It's on the southeast coast in a state called Tamil Nadu. Well, in December of 2004, there was a massive earthquake happened 12 miles beneath the Indian Ocean. It sent a huge tidal wave, a tsunami, across the world. You remember, 260,000 people died with that tsunami. But 30,000 of those deaths occurred right here in this region where our orphanage is, in Tamil Nadu in Chennai, India. And I remember, you know, we, when we could get in touch with Joseph, uh, you know, some days later, what happened to y'all? Well, they were in church when it happened, and Joseph literally carried some of the smaller children out, and other adults carried some of the smaller children out uh, in waist-deep water. The water came in from the coast three miles. And uh, they got out, and Joseph's motorcycle got washed away, and y'all bought him another one. Thank you. And all the villages around the uh, had everything washed away, all your cooking utensils and your blankets. And so <clears throat> we sent a lot of money back then, and <clears throat> you did. And um, Joseph went around to the villages distributing pots and pans, utensils, eating utensils, and blankets and mats just to begin rebuilding life. And in every village, he would distribute, and then he preached. And he says, a larger wave is coming than the tsunami, the judgment of God. And we are guilty of worshiping multiple idols that are not the living God. Repent, or a greater wave will take your life for all eternity. This is what the book of, why the book of Revelation is written, to allow us to see smaller judgments before we encounter the final judgment. Number five, the judgments of Christ provide the church with an opportunity to witness in a world of chaos, obviously building upon the point that I just made. But I want to build upon that point by asking a question that many of you probably are asking. You were probably raised with a wrong belief. So many people ask, well, will we be around during any of these judgments, the four horsemen of the apocalypse will be around, and that's an unequivocal yes. Of course, we will be around. We're going to get to this next week because we're seeing the fifth seal is talking about those who died during the previous four seals, believers. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So while the four judgments were going on in seals one through four, you had a bunch of Christians witnessing to the world and they were, they were killed. Being a Christian does not mean we get a free pass on suffering. That's how some of you were raised. I don't know where that theology comes from. Not from my 35 years of 
dealing with severe suffering. This should be no surprise to us that we will be here as the sufferings of Christ amp up because we've been here since the very time, the first time that Jesus Christ cursed the earth. He told Adam and Eve, you eat from the tree, I'm going to curse the earth. Death and disease came that very moment. From that point on, we've all been sharing a planet. Earth is hard. Earth is hard. And so what God needs is people who don't panic when earth is hard. We sorrow. We grieve. Our losses change our lives forever. It takes us sometimes years to recover and never really do. Sort of, you know, leaning toward healing on the big ones. But in the middle of that, we tell people there is a Christ who's died to redeem the world from this curse. And if you want to live forever in that new earth where the curse is lifted, you must come to Christ. Societies will crumble and collapse, but we don't collapse. Our hope doesn't collapse. Our hearts break, but our hopes don't collapse. I read an interesting... Um, I didn't read the whole book. I just read part of it. This is a title if you want to look at it later. It's called The Rise of Christianity. A Sociologist Reconsiders History. It was written by a guy named Rodney Stark who looked at the huge pandemic, epidemic, that went through the Roman Empire in the second century. Once it started in 165 AD uh, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. He was... Caesar of Rome, and I know that we've been through something, two years. This one lasted 15 years. And it took the lives of a third of the Roman Empire, including the life of Marcus Aurelius, Caesar, who died in Vienna, Austria in 180 AD. But the author Rodney Stark says, during this time, in the second century, continuing to the third century when pestilences were still happening, the church experienced an unusual period of growth because the world saw the hope of believers and Christians charging into the battle zones of disease and death with no fear, offering their lives to help those who were dying. Like the world saw there's no hope except in the hope of the church. And the church grew exponentially because of the undying hope of Christians. So this is my last question of, well, since we're going to be here and God wants us here to witness for him. I mean, all of these things are happening. We want to be saying, hey, be ready, be ready, be ready. What do we say? Boy, this one's an easy one to answer because our message is given to us at the end of the book of Revelation. Revelation twenty two seventeen. 17, the spirit and the bride, that's another name in the church, uh, for the church in the book of Revelation. So the spirit and the church say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty, Come. 
Isn't it interesting how now we have a different use of the word come? In the book of Revelation chapter 6, when Jesus untied every scroll, one of the living creatures gave an order for pestilence or disease or famine or whatever to leave. And he gave that order by, by telling that worker of destruction, come, and then send him out. Here, at the end of Revelation, for anybody who wants to go to heaven, Jesus says, come. Come to me for the forgiveness of sins. Come to me for a new start. Come to me to have your past erased. Come to me to have eternal hope in heaven. Come to me to be a son or daughter of God. Come. Look how many times the word come is used in those. Three times so that you and I will get the message. Come. Come. Come now. Come to Christ. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.